Let me pray for us and uh, for our kids. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. And so we pray now both uh, for ourselves and for our little ones um, that this morning as we hear the story of the gospel, as we hear of Jesus again, as we look uh, here this morning at Psalm 73, that you would lead us to uh, know you, to enjoy you, to experience in this very moment uh, what the psalmist experiences. And would you change us? Uh, would you lead us in this time by the work of your spirit? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we're going to be thinking about doubt and faith, as Jeff already mentioned this morning, uh, in Psalm 73. If you've been with us as we've been doing this series in the Psalms, I hope one of the things that you've taken away from the Psalms is how honest they are. You know, the Psalms don't sugarcoat things. The Psalms don't push hard questions aside. We've seen in many Psalms uh, the disorienting experience uh, when, when someone's experiencing suffering and darkness and hardship. And at times maybe you've even heard the psalmist go into that darkness and speak of that darkness before the Lord in ways that almost made you feel uncomfortable. We looked at Psalms where this sort of new orientation or this being oriented around the reality of who God is and what he's doing has so rooted a person and so given them just perspective and clarity and peace. And Psalm 73 is a great example of really the process of moving from disorientation to this new orientation, the process of moving from doubt to faith. So how do you deal with doubt? What do you do when your experience in the world leads you to seriously question what you believe? That's what I want us to think about as we look at this psalm this morning. Uh, if you have the text in front of you, um, I want you to see how this movement from doubt to faith is in the very structure of the psalm. You might have even heard it as, as it was being read. It's, it's very clear. Um, in the psalm, there's, there's this Hebrew particle that shows up three times, and it really divides the psalm into three sections. So you can see it in verse 1, verse 13, and verse 18. It's translated truly in verse 1 and 18, and in the scripture that we have printed in the bulletin, it's left untranslated in verse 13, but you could easily write in, or you could just imagine the word truly at the beginning of verse 13, Truly, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. And you would see this structure. So the first section, verses 1 through 12, kind of lays out the experience of doubt. And then this middle section, 13 through 17, is really sort of the process and the turning point where the psalmist moves from doubt to faith. And then this last section, 18 to 28, is the resolution of doubt. So let's look at these, uh, these three sections, and I want us to consider the following three things as we're doing that. So first, what are the causes of doubt? Second, how do we work through doubt? And then third, how knowing God changes 
everything. So first, what are, what are the causes of doubt? If you look at the psalm, it starts, with a, it starts with like a confessional statement almost. Verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Kind of like we just did like a minute ago when we were confessing our faith together from the Heidelberg Catechism. You know, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I belong to Jesus. This, the, song, the psalm starts with this mini confessional statement. And then the writer talks about how he almost completely rejected this and turned away. Or in the way he puts it in verse 2, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. This psalm does not give us an exhaustive list of every reason and cause for why someone might doubt or, or you know, turn from their faith or be tempted to do that. But there are two main uh, causes that we can see in this psalm that I think we will connect with. The first I want us to consider is when your experience doesn't match the doctrine. This psalm spends the most time on this and it goes into the most detail about this. The writer looks at the wicked, verse 3, and he looks at his experience of how life is for the wicked and how life is for him, and it seems to contradict what he believes about God. It seems to contradict verse 1. Various scholars see uh, Psalm 73 as sort of a, a summary of what has happened in the book of Psalms from one, Psalm 1 to 72. Psalm 1 starts, it's a wisdom psalm, and it lays out these very two clear paths in very sort of Old Testament wisdom way. It says there's the way of the righteous and there's the way of the wicked. And it's like utterly clear. The way of the wicked is a life that is, it's, it's, it's a dead life. It's an unrooted life. It's a not prospering life. It's like your, your uh, leaves that are just crumbling and blowing through the air. It's unstable. But the life of the righteous is this rooted, flourishing, fruitful, stable life. Like you're a tree planted by a stream of water. But this is not this man's experience. His experience doesn't match the doctrine. It doesn't match the teaching. Look at what he experiences. Verse 3. He sees prosperity in the lives of the wicked. And the word here in Hebrew is shalom. You might know that word. It might be familiar to you. It's a very rich and significant term. Uh, one of the most well-known benedictions, we often say it at the end of our services, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you shalom, give you peace, give you wholeness. That's what the wicked seem to be experiencing. Fullness of life. Blessing. Rich. Full. Look at verses 4 through 9. This is what the wicked are like. Verse 4. Pain-free, healthy, well-fed, strong. Verse 5. Not a care in the world. Verse 6. Wearing arrogance and pride like a necklace for everyone to see. Wearing violence like clothes. Verse 7, they are willful, they let their hearts run after evil. Verse 8, they are loud-mouthed bullies. 
who, verse 9, run their mouths in arrogant confidence about everything you could imagine. This is the wicked. And what's more, verse 10, they seem to kind of be getting a following. People are flocking to them. And it doesn't seem like God knows or cares to do anything about it. Look at them, verse 12. He says, this is the wicked lives of comfort and wealth. So how can the creed be true? How can the doctrine be true? How can Psalm 1 be true if this is what happens? To put it in ways that you might hear it today, the ways that you might even express it yourself, how can this good, powerful God of the Bible exist in a world like ours with so much suffering and evil? How could there be just one true religion when people all over the world you know, do spirituality in their own way and it seems to work for them? How can the Christian church, with its messy history of violence and scandal and corruption, really be the place where you come to meet the true God? Experience conflicts with doctrine. And it's one very strong reason for doubt. But another reason for doubt comes, and we can see this in the psalm, from what we want. You know, what you and I find reasonable and believable is probably more shaped by what we want and desire than we want to really admit. This man is incredibly honest when he says in verse 3, here's the reason I almost walked away from God. It's because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I wanted what they had. I wanted something. I wasn't getting it. They had it. I was envious. And envy in particular, and, and I think we could even say desire in general, has a profound shaping influence on our life, our experience, and, and what we believe. And think about our world for a minute, right? Let's just be honest. In our world of consumerism, in our world of just constant advertisements, in our world of social media, you can't go an hour, except for maybe when you're sleeping, without being confronted and exposed and seeing someone who is happier, who seems to be healthier, who's richer, who's more successful than you are. I mean, social media, you get on social media and you see friends, you know, if you're in high school, or you're in college, and you see how everyone is doing things that are like so fun, and why weren't you invited? And why are they in that group and I'm not in that group? You know, we see uh, families that go on these vacations. I, I wish I could go on that vacation. Driving the car. I, why am I driving this beater car? I wish I had that car. I wish I had that job. I wish I wouldn't have done that thing in college. I should have done something else. I could have lived in that house. Look at their marriage. Oh, it's beautiful. Their marriage is so great. Why can't my spouse be like that? Look at their kids. They seem to have it all together. What's going on with my kids? And this kind of desiring erodes any possibility that you could enjoy the goodness of God. What do you wish was different about your life? What do you see in others' lives around you that you wish was true of your life 
You know, we're meant to read Psalm 73 and think of Genesis chapter 3. Right before humanity turns away from God in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are there in the glorious paradise of God, and the serpent comes up and begins asking questions about God's command not to eat of that one tree, the knowledge of good, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And after the lie of the serpent enters Eve's heart, the lie that God is not good, that God is really keeping something from you, that he's a stingy God, he's not a good God. The text says in Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw, and it's the same word here as in verse 3 of our psalm, when the writer saw the prosperity of the wicked, Eve saw that the tree was beautiful. She saw that it looked delicious. She saw that it could give her wisdom. And so she took of it and she ate. I want you to think about what this is telling us. If you can be in the paradise of God, if you can be in the place that is free from all pain and brokenness and sin, you, you can be in a place where you're free to live as God's child and to know God and to walk with God and to be face to face with God. And you're free to enjoy creation and enjoy everything that God has made except for the one tree that he said, don't eat this because I'm God and you're not. And that seems unfair. Envy can make that seem unfair. Envy can make you to question that God is not good. It can cast a dark shadow over paradise. Can you imagine what in the world envy must be doing in us? Maybe in ways that we don't even realize. Can you imagine the role that envy and desire must be playing in the way that we struggle with faith, in the, the way that we doubt? I want you to just think for a minute about you know, when someone commits adultery. And think about the process of how this often happens, especially if there's someone who would make some profession of faith uh, beforehand. You know, the person wants something. They want love. They want affirmation. They're not getting it. Someone else gives it to them. They begin to feel like, I really deserve this. I, I need this. I have to have this. And so they justify it, and they act on it. And in the process, perhaps they turn away from God completely, and they just chuck their faith. Or they just scrap the stuff the Bible says about marriage and about God's desires. Because they think, surely God doesn't want me to be unhappy. You see, doubt can come because our experience doesn't match what the Bible teaches, it doesn't match the doctrine. It can also come because of our desires and because God's not giving us things that we think that we need and have to have. But how do you work through doubt? The psalmist almost gives up, verses 13 and 14. His initial conclusion basically is, my obedience seemed pointless. But then things begin to change. And this is what I would call the first step that we can, the first step we see in this psalm. And it is realizing that your human intellect, your rationality, can't solve the problem. Look at verse 16. 
But when I thought how to understand this, when I tried to figure it out, right, when I tried to think it out, when I tried to come up with an answer for what I've come to see and experience, it seemed to be a wearisome task. I would say this is actually the first step if you're not believing or you're doubting or you're honestly asking questions, the first step is to realize that your human intellect, that the, the way that you conceive of the world and try to make sense of the world, can't actually do it. Uh, Vince Gillian, uh, some of you may know him. He's the creator of Breaking Bad, which is one of my all-time favorite shows. Don't watch it with your children if you don't know what it is. Um, He's talking in an interview about the show Breaking Bad. And at one point, he began to share about his own struggles with his atheism. And he said this, quote, My girlfriend of 20 years has a great line that I always quote. She says, I can stand the thought that there's no heaven, but I don't know that I can stand the thought that there's no hell. Because where is Hitler then? You know, where is Pol Pot? It's the Cambodian prime minister in the late 1970s who oversaw the Cambodian genocide, one and a half to two million people dead. Where are they? There's got to be some kind of payback. Even the show Breaking Bad, if you've seen it, there is a resolution to it. The main character... An anti-hero figure, Walter White, embodies basically the picture of the wicked in this psalm. He is violent. He's arrogant. He amasses wealth and comforts. But at the end of the show, at the end of the series, he has to face himself. He has to face what he's done. And he has to die. And like so many movies and shows and stories that we tell and we watch, we know that there has to be some kind of justice. There ha there, there's a minor satisfaction, right, with like a Harvey Weinstein or a Larry Messar, but then there's all of the people like, like a Hitler or a Pol Pot or the Jeffrey Epsteins who never face justice. And why is it, right, so many people in our world, they may not even believe the Bible, but there's this instinctive sense that we know that justice matters. And we're willing to protest, and we're willing to, you know, spend our lives for this. It matters. Think of other things, other sort of transcendent values, like love. Why is love seen as so central to human life and a good life? Why is it that the vast majority of people in this world believe that all human life is precious and valuable and so is worthy of respect and dignity? Why is it that so many of us value forgiveness and sacrifice and we want to care for the poor and the weak? Agnostic historian Tom Holland has shown in, in his work how all of these ideas that I just mentioned and more, they come from Christianity. So what happens when you reject God, but you try to hold on to that, it doesn't make sense. And it's really the first step to realize this. Like the problem of evil, just as an example, evil and suffering in the world, yes, that can be something hard to swallow and make sense of as you're trying to make sense of faith in God. But if you get rid of God, now you've actually done away with evil. 
Because evil, like good, assumes a universal moral category. And so now your very experience that has led you to reject God, you have to reject that whole experience and that whole way of feeling. It doesn't help you. It's a wearisome task. It won't get you there. Wherever you are in doubt or questioning, you have to realize you can't make sense of it yourself and you have to go into verse 17. You have to let it lead you to go into the sanctuary. Which is to say, to actually seek after God. You know, up to this point in the psalm, God's hardly mentioned at all, kind of in passing a little bit. The psalmist is confused, he's angry, he's slipping, he's mentally exhausted, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. You work through doubt by seeing how little of the world and your own experience you can even make sense of. And then you let that lead you to actually go seek after God, to go into the sanctuary, to seek his help. And you go in and you, and you listen. You, you, you read his word. You, you sing. You listen to the transcendent God tell the story of the world and tell the story of your life and tell the story of those transcendent values that deep down in your bones you know are true, but you don't have any way of describing why they're true. And you listen to him tell this story that starts to put the pieces together. In a sense, you worship. And as you bring your whole self and life before God, and as you do this in community with others, everything can actually change. And that's what I want you to see what happens in this psalm, because everything for this man does change. Like, look at the rest of this psalm. It is crazy. From one perspective, from one way of seeing and looking at the world, verses 2 through 16, the psalmist is slipping, he's not stable, he's deeply troubled, he's a mess, it's confusing, and it doesn't make sense. And then verse 17, it's the wicked who are really slipping. It's they who are going to be destroyed in a moment. They're like a dream that just fades away in the morning. You know, previously he was full of envy and, and ang anger, I think you could say, and, and some self-pity. But now, verses 21 and 22, there's humility. And he recognizes, I was like an ignorant animal with no sense before. Previously full of doubt and struggle, but now it's almost like it's faded away. You know, a few weeks ago... Um, our family took a, a vacation. Uh, we went to uh, Lookout Mountain, Georgia. We were up near Covenant College. Some of you know that area. And at least when we were there, I don't know those of you who lived there, went to school there. Um, when we were there in the morning, there's this like really heavy mist and fog that kind of descends on the mountain. And then the sun comes out and it's like the fog just fades away. And I want you to think about that image because like the fading of the mist of the summer sun, it, in God's glorious presence, all of a sudden the doubts just start to kind of dissolve. The answer to doubt in the end isn't really an answer. It's communion. It's knowing this person. It's knowing and being with God. Look at all the I, you language at the end of this psalm. 
And think of where this man has been and what he says now, verse 23. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My heart, my flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God didn't change. God doesn't change. But this man came to experience God and to know him and to know his presence, and it changed everything for him. You know, what do we need to work through with doubt and struggle? And if we're going through a crisis of faith, we need a person because we were made for a person. And I think deep down, we basically know this. And it's the reason why love and relationships are so important to us. It's, it's the reason why, you know, I think we all instinctually know that if personal relationships in your life fall apart, there's no amount of work success and money that can really make you happy. And you probably also know people who do not have anywhere near the amount of success or money as other people, and yet they have personal relationships and their life is actually meaningful and joyful. And of course the Bible tells us the reason why relationships and love are so important to us is because we were made to know a person. We were made to commune with God and to know God and experience his love. And so wouldn't it make sense then, if, you know, if this is true, if this is our experience, that the most deep spiritual experience, the, the truest spiritual experience would have to be relating to a personal God. You know, Buddhism, Eastern religions, New Age spiritualities, you don't get a personal God. And there's only one religion that not only says that, yes, there is a personal God and you were made for him, but this God, in the fullest revelation of himself, didn't send a letter, didn't shout commands from a mountain, but came into the world as a person. And this is the story of the gospel, of Jesus Christ, who came into the world as a person. And I want you to imagine the glorious communion that Jesus knew his entire existence from eternity past, knowing the love of the Father, having God delight in him, him delighting in God. And he came and he went to the cross and he lost it so that you who sinned could be welcomed back to know the communion you were made for. The greatest gift that God could give us is the gift of himself and that is what he gave in Jesus Christ it's a gift that if you will receive and if you will experience and if you will enjoy can change everything it can change suffering it can transform your desires it can take the envy that just latches on to everything around you and it can orient you to the glorious Savior who loves you and has given himself for you. And so what I want us to do just now even is to pause and maybe just take a moment in silence 
to sit with what we've just seen in this psalm and then to come before God, asking for his help, confessing our sins, asking that he would help us to really receive and enjoy what he gives us in the gospel. Let's take a few moments to do that and then I'll lead us in prayer.